Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. A student's success in school is determined by a wide spectrum of factors, including family life, relationships, mental health, and school policy. Since the start of the pandemic, there has been a concerning drop in student attainment around the world. Even more concerning is the rising number of students being excluded from secondary schools. This exclusion is driven by the school's reaction to poor behavior, often guided by the assumption that punishment will change behavior. To help us better understand the cause and impact of school exclusion, as well as strategies to help students stay in school, I'm joined by an Oxford University professor who has been researching this issue for several years. Professor Ian Thompson is Associate Professor of English Education at Oxford University's Department of Education, as well as being Director of the PGCE course. He is joint convener of the Oxford Centre of Socioculture and Activity Theory Research and Fellow of St. Hugh's College. He is also a member of Oxford University's English faculty. Ian is currently co-PI on a £2.5 million ESRC-funded project entitled Excluded Lives, The Political Economies of School Exclusion and Their Consequences. Thank you very much, Ian, for joining me today. No problem. Nice to see you. To start off, I just wanted to ask you first if you can give a little bit of an overview of what is meant by school exclusion. What does that mean? School exclusion in its formal sense. So you can be excluded from school on a fixed term basis, which is when the school decides normally because of something you've done or you may have done it in in a group that that it would be in the school's interest and possibly in your interest to not be in school for a fixed period of time. That's normally up to to five days. But then there's permanent exclusion. So permanent school exclusion means that you're excluded from a a particular school. You're not allowed to go back into that school. There is an appeals process, but um, if you don't win that appeal, that means that you're no longer part of that, that, that school. There is then requirement on the local authority to find you some form of schooling. But in truth, that can be a very limited form of schooling, but partial placements in alternative provision or into what's called a pupil referral unit, which are the schools that are set up not just for the youngsters who have been excluded, but, but they're, they're, they're set up for youngsters of, of, of all age who are between schools, I suppose is the best way, way to put it. But then there's exclusion in its broader sense. So those are the, the formal sense of exclusion, but lots of, of youngsters are, are excluded from school in different sort of ways. The curriculum doesn't fit them, the, the school culture doesn't, doesn't, doesn't fit them. So we're also interested in those, those youngsters who can't go to school, won't go to school, don't feel welcome at school. So they're excluding themselves. The the schools that make it unwelcome for them, you know, in in extreme circumstances, you know, schools Mm -hmm. basically tell tell youngsters that that they're not welcome in their school because Mm -hmm. they don't fit the norms or they don't fit the patterns of behaviour that are expected in in the school. Um, And those forms of, of... what's called here off-rolling. So in other words, they're off the school role and therefore don't count in league tables of, of, of examination results. You know, that, that's quite difficult to measure, 
it is fairly rife across the system, particularly in England. What you were first talking about, then you would be excluded formally because of bad behaviour or behaviour that doesn't fit with the school's culture. Is that yeah, right? well, I mean, it's interesting when you look at what people are excluded for, youngsters, and you know, youngsters as young as four years old can be excluded from, from mm. school. Wow. Though, though you're far more likely to be excluded if you're between the ages of 13 to 15. So 14, 15, most likely ages to be excluded. But if you look at the reasons, sometimes it's for, for an act of violence, Sometimes it's for acts of extreme defiance. Sometimes it might be for having drugs. But actually, the, by far the most common reasons are what's called p- persistent disruptive behaviour. So p- persistent in that it happens a lot. But what's defined as disruptive is very much down to the school. So that's by far the most common reason for exclusions of all type and for permanent exclusions in, in particular. And there's so many reasons for mm. that. I know we're going to get into later, but that's the unfortunate part is that hearing that someone is behaving badly, but as soon as you scratch the surface of that, there's so many complex reasons. Well, exactly. And, and when you think of behaviours, and, and it's interesting that in England, as opposed to the rest of the UK, but in, in England in particular, they, they talk about school behaviour and behaviour policies. They don't use that term in Scotland. They use uh, relationship policies. So relationship between mm. pupils, um, but also pupils and, and, and staff. Yeah, because behaviour is, is seen as rules that, that, that are important for a school community, then it's quite easy to slip outside because you're not happy with that school community or you're not happy with what's going on at home or, or, or outside. Mm. Whereas a lot of people will talk about behaviour as a form of communication. For some schools, that, that's, that's, it's not perceived in that way. It's perceived as, as simply rule-breaking. And um, there was a, a British ac- an academic called Carl Parsons who wrote a paper called Will to Punish, and I think that's a, a way to look at what happens in some schools in England. And I don't want to generalise, by the way, because not all schools in England exclude a lot or do permanently exclude a lot. But overall, the system is far more likely to exclude than the, the other parts of the United Kingdom. And, uh, and we're talking about your study, Excluded Lives, and that takes place in England. But this concept really does apply internationally. I mean, certain aspects of this might be somewhat different. Or you said in Scotland, you use relationships, not behavior. But in essence, children are excluded from school for bad behavior around the world. So what we're going to talk about really does apply, I think, to... Yeah, oh, yes, it does. I mean, actually, the study itself is a comparative study across the four United Kingdom jurisdictions. So... Yeah, we have colleagues in, in Cardiff, Belfast and, and, and Edinburgh um, work with, with us. But, but we also have, have contacts around the world with colleagues working on, on similar projects or to, who have an interest in, in inclusion more, more broadly and then right. processes that lead to, it, to exclusion. So, so yes, we, we think it definitely does have international, not just significance, but, but resonance to, to, to other places. Right. And so can you tell me some of the key aspects of the research in your Excluded Lives projects? What are the what is the key idea that you're looking for, the key question? I'll, I'll go back to, to how we set the group up. So Harry Daniels, professor in education in our, in our department, came to us about nine, nine years ago. And, and we started talking about some of the work that he'd been doing and some of the work that I've, I've been doing. The work I've been doing was more about collaboration between teachers and the work that he had been doing was about 
exclusion uh, and inclusion over some some time. And Harry in particular, came to, uh, looking at the work that he'd done, said one of the, one of the weaknesses in, in all the work that's been done around exclusion is that everything's just been done from an educational perspective. So it's people from education, researching education. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with that in one sense, but in terms of trying to understand why things go wrong, particularly for youngsters who, who may um, work with other agencies. So it could be the police, it could be the criminal justice system, mm. it could be health, it could be social welfare. There are different perspectives on, on what might be going on in, in these young people's lives. So when we came up with the idea to set up excluded lives, it was consciously from a multidisciplinary perspective. So it's different disciplines looking at a, a shared interest. So the group, as it evolved initially in Oxford, involved people from psychiatry, from criminology, from law, from social policy, social geography, and then a whole range of people from educational background, psychology, sociology, teacher education, and so on. So the, the project, as always from the start, before we got this this large ESRC grant, being multidisciplinary, and then we added on the multi-site because when we looked at exclusions in the United Kingdom, it was clear that, as I said before, England excludes far more than any other of the jurisdictions. And in the last published figures um, available, England excluded just under 8,000 youngsters permanently in, in, in a year. Wow. But Scotland, in their last published figures, were three, not 3,000, but three mm-hmm. youngsters. So, so the massive differences. So we, we wanted to have that cross-jurisdictional perspective. Um, things are, are not as bad in England, in, in Northern Ireland as Wales, though they're, they're the worst in both of those two, two jurisdictions than Scotland. We had a couple of small projects which were funded by John Phelps Fund in Oxford, and that allowed us to look at patterns of exclusion in, in Oxfordshire and then patterns of exclusions across the U- UK. And that led to the large bid that I talked about before, the ESRC, which is a four-year grant. And in that project, or this project that we're doing now, which is actually called the Political Economies of School Exclusion and Their Consequences, so a very catchy back. Um, but, but the point of it is trying to get a more rounded picture of what, what exclusion is and what it might do and what the consequences are, not just for the young people, though that's the most important, but also for their teachers, their schools, families or carers, the community as a whole and society as, as a whole. So the idea is we're looking at the, the landscapes of exclusion, so mapping how the policies and practices in, in each of the jurisdictions and, and within a large jurisdiction like England, the differences between local authorities and types of school, you know, how they operate differently. Looking at the experiences of exclusion, so the experiences of all of all those concerned, particularly the, the youngsters, but also the professionals that the, the, they work with, families and, and carers, and, and, and so on. Mm. We're also looking at the economics of exclusion. So we've got a colleague from London School of Economics who's looking at the, the actual costs in terms of the cost to the individual. I get excluded. I'm less likely to get a job. I'm less likely to go into particular forms of, of, of employment, but also the cost to the family or to the carer mm. who has to take time, time off work. That the actual costs of alternative provision, which are astronomically expensive. So it's not that exclusion is a cheap option for society. It's actually a problem at the time, and it's a problem long term as well. So, And we're doing all those levels of analysis, which work through work pack- packages at both a cross-jurisdictional 
and multidisciplinary level. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes, exactly. Because when a child, and you were saying that there's so many costs, of course, the cost to them of not being able to get a good job, but all these other provisions of some forms of government support. Also, if you're not in school, then you're more likely, I would assume, to be somehow encounter the police, possibly. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely more vulnerable. If you're not in school, the chances of you getting involved with people that you probably shouldn't be involved in are much higher. You're much more prone to uh, targeted by by gangs, for for example, Mm -hmm. or or by other predatory um, groups. So, yeah, the dangers of not being in school, either because you're self-excluding or, or because you're being excluded by the school system, are very real, both at the time, but also long, long term. Hmm. And so what are the key factors that impact a student to be excluded? I mean, there there's definitely a lot of different factors, but what have you found to be some of the top reasons? Well, I mean, maybe the best way to, to, to answer that is, is talk a little bit about the work we did locally in Oxfordshire. So we, we, we talked to some youngsters who've been excluded either permanently or on fixed terms on many bases and who were in some form of alternative provision. We tried to look at their, their, their timeline. So you know, what had happened over the time that they'd been in school? When did they start getting in trouble? Um, when did they start getting fixed term exclusions? What else was happening in their life? who they were talking to, who, who they had contact with in terms of other, other services and so on. But in almost every occasion, it was one or two traumatic events that had set off a series of events which then escalated quite quickly. So the youngster might have had very limited problems when they were in, in primary school. Something had happened like someone had a major trauma in the family, you know, a death or someone had been sent to prison or something like that. And things escalated quite quickly at that point. So the youngster had lots of contact with different services, but the services weren't necessarily meeting together or talking together and not necessarily with the school. So the school didn't necessarily know that something had, had, had happened. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is that it, it's normally... It's not something within the child, which is the danger of saying, you know, you know, this child is just naughty, this child can never behave. It's a combination of, of factors that can lead to them displaying behaviours which are seen as problematic, but actually are really that cry, cry for help. I mean, there are categorizations of youngsters who are far more likely to be excluded, which is another way of answering the question. So the, but the biggest group being youngsters with special educational needs mm. and often special education needs that that are not met. Schools might know they need special help, but the actual need hasn't been identified and the provision hasn't been provided um, for for that youngster. But then there are other categories, ethnicity, for example. So you are far more likely to be excluded if you're you're a a black uh, male from an Afro-Caribbean background, for example, or from traveller, gypsy population. Or actually, and more broadly speaking, if you come from impoverished backgrounds. So if Mm. you come from communities that are are more socially disadvantaged, you are more likely to have a combination of SEN, difficulties attending school, and to fall foul of, of, of the school rules. Right. That's really important to understand because on the surface it is, you're being excluded mainly for behavior issues. But as soon as you scratch a little bit below that, there's so much else, which you said often falls under the umbrella of some kind of a trauma, something that is in the family or, or personally being experienced. I mean, there's so much research that shows that when children 
maybe have started school by already be, being behind in literacy and not being able to read. They show bad behavior because they're feeling very vulnerable and embarrassed, even sometimes not being able to see the board. Yeah. It's not identified as a visual problem, rather the behavior that gets picked up. And I mean, it just goes on and on with so many other issues that need to be addressed. And often learning is excluded, exactly. is, is separated from these issues. But how people learn and their ability to learn is very much dependent on these traumatic or challenges that they have. I mean, it's interesting you pick up on literacy. I mean, language communication difficulties in a broad sense, both biggest form of SCM that the youngsters who are normally share. But that can mean a lot of things. So it might be a social, not being able to socialize, acceptable. So saying things inappropriate to an adult, for example, mm -hmm. that you might say to a playground, but in a classroom, and, and not knowing. What is appropriate? But, but as you say, also once you fall behind, so if you're falling behind in literacy, what do you do in the classroom, which is, becomes increasingly difficult? Um, mm -hmm. uh, from the youngsters that we've spoken to, when we, we asked them things like, you know, do you feel safe in school? Do you enjoy school? And the thing that they hate most is being humiliated. Mm. You know, it's being put in a position where they're being laughed at or feel they're being laughed at in the literally being being laughed at and and so in that situation you know trying to find things that make you not laughed at mm -hmm. is is a very interesting form of communicative behavior so you know tasks too difficult in my classroom what do I do I try and I try and change things you know I, I create a disturbance I'll do something differently so that I'm not put in the position where I'm going to be feel humiliated right it, do you find that there's a gender divide as well with uh, exclusion? Because so often the research says that, for example, learning difficulties often show up in girls as being internalized, not talking in class, whereas in boys, it's showing as behavior or being funny or being disruptive in the class. So it often gets missed in girls because they're quiet. Yeah. And then it gets misdiagnosed in boys because they are disruptive. Are you finding this in your research? I think that, that is very true. You are more likely to be excluded if you're a boy. That, that is true. But actually the rate of exclusion for girls is rising, and particularly amongst t teenagers. But I think that the point that you made that girls are less likely to be diagnosed with SEN and particular forms of SEN because they tend to be quiet is, is certainly borne out by, by recent research. So a lot of research diagnosis of autism, for example, are very late in girls, mm -hmm. far less likely to be categorised in that way and given therefore subsequent support. Yes, I think there are gen gender aspects, both in terms of, of who's excluded, being more likely to be male, but also who's not diagnosed and not, not helped. Hmm. more likely to be, be female. So yes, I think those, those are important and worrying aspects of, hmm. of exclusion. Absolutely. And so you were speaking about trauma being a huge underlying factor. And with this year, with the pandemic, have you noticed any kind of difference? You know, there's a lot of families going through a lot of very difficult times, which of course contributes to the child being in a stressful and, and traumatic experience possibly. Has that had an impact on exclusion? Yes, um, though it's difficult to quantify it at, at the moment because mm -hmm. figures haven't come out. But in terms of the work we've done, so one of the things we, we did when the pandemic hit was just as we were launching a very big survey and looking at, at experiences of exclusion. But of course, when the pandemic 
hit in England, as in you know much of much of the world, schools were were shut down, though not completely. They were they were left open for youngsters whose families were in essential services or who had SEN. But when that happened, the whole concept of what exclusion meant had a very different one to us. So we, so we, you know, we thought not a good time to do a, a survey, and we wanted to find out whether there were new risks of new groups who may be more likely to be excluded. We talked to professionals, we talked to people from the health service, we talked to police, to social services, and obviously to people in, in, in schools. One of the biggest issues that came up was, was mental health, particularly anxiety, but also reactions to trauma. So for many young youngsters, they will have experienced deaths in, 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 their, in their family or community or wider, wider community. Hmm. And again, th- th- there's often an ethnic basis to that. England wouldn't be exclusive in this at all. You, you are more likely to have caught and come from particular ethnic back, backgrounds. So there's that as, aspect. But there's also just living in difficult situations. So living mm. in crowded accommodation with, with several youngsters or having to take on care duties. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've heard of, of, of youngsters who are doing very well in school, but when lockdown hit, having to suddenly basically look after four or five other youngsters in the house, mm-hmm. sharing a computer, lack of internet access and so on. So the, the stress of those things have, have multiplied and other for other youngsters who, who basically never showed any worry about going to school. You know, they've, they've gone to school, it's just been part of the normal thing that you do. Long term, being out of school has, in, has increased their anxiety of you know of, of social situations. So, particularly youngsters from with autism, for example, I mean, they, they, you know, a lot of them actually enjoyed the lockdown because they liked being on a computer. So, as long as they had a computer with access, they actually quite enjoyed that. But of course, then being asked to go back into schools when schools reopened, been very difficult for for a lot of them, and for kids with SEN, which means they're more likely to demonstrate loud or what's what are seen as dis- disruptive behaviors the new ro- rules post covid well pre you know during covid that's still going on of course but the rules that schools have to adhere to to try and have some form of social distancing within school just not been possible for them to follow so combination of mental health worries of anxiety and not being able to follow rules definitely having a, having a big impact and on teachers as well actually yes you know, we think a lot of you know, the youngsters quite rightly but teachers and other uh, staff of work working schools are also working under particular strains you know the fact that certainly during the first lockdown we're in our second one here in, in england at the moment but during the first lockdown at, at that point teachers were and, and um, emergency services staff and people worked in some shops were the only ones going in, into work. It's less true in, in the second lockdown. So I think they felt the pressure a lot. You know, they had the worry of going in, not knowing where, whether it's safe. And then the the, uh, the worry of having to look after uh, youngsters who were, yeah, I think it's taken its toll. That's really hard. Mm. Really impacting the way someone's able to learn, but also really impacting the outbursts of problematic behavior that can actually contribute to being excluded from school. So it's, um, it's definitely a very complex situation. But you spoke about relationships and how, for example, in England, it's referred to as behavior problems, whereas in Scotland, it's referred to as 
relationship problems. And relationship really is a big part of exclusion. And you spoke in your research about the fact that actually the relationships teachers have with other teachers is a big part of how they can deal with students to prevent exclusions and also how relationship teachers have with their students, how that can prevent exclusions as well. So relationships being very, very important. Can you first talk a little bit about the relationship between the teacher and the student? And what about a relationship between a teacher and yeah. a student can help them from being excluded? Yeah, I mean, as you said, I mean, you know, Scott, they use the, the term relationship policy, but the whole point of that is, is about a mutual relationship. So it, it, it's about building that mutual level of, of trust and understanding that is essential in the classroom. And I, I don't think any teacher would disagree with that but might start from that basis the problem is if, if that's not their sole focus it's quite easy then to say how that slips into yeah, yes but you didn't behave the way that we agreed therefore i'm going to punish you i'm not arguing for teachers sort of accepting poor behavior but the poor behavior comes from a child feeling threatened or feeling humiliated or feeling put in a situation that they should shouldn't be so it's trying to control to to, to make classroom and environments that's conducive to youngsters not being af afraid of failure, not, not being afraid they're going to be uh, humiliated. So it's really about the whole classroom and environment in terms of, of, of relationships. So, you know, not just the teacher-student one-to-one relationship, though that's, though that's important, but, but the way the atmosphere is conducted in, in, in the classroom, the, the, you know, the, the opportunities that the teacher has to work with both the whole class but, but, but with groups to, to use different language at different times in terms of explanation. So all that sort of normal work that the teacher does anyway, but actually more mm -hmm. focused on how can I allow this youngster to trust me uh, and to trust the rest of the class enough that learning becomes the most important right. thing. Them. Great. And to prevent those types of situations, as you said, embarrassment yeah. or lack of understanding of what someone might be going through that can be addressed before it becomes a problem. Yeah. What I found really interesting is that you said that teachers that have a networks outside of their own department, so with other teachers from other schools, that they are better equipped to help children not be excluded from school. So their own networks. Yeah and their own relationships with other professionals outside of their immediate surrounding. So how does that play a role in it? What is important about that network? I mean, the kernel of this idea came from some work we did with a group of secondary schools who were concerned about their professional learning communities. That they actually used language, which, which you may have recognised from um, Hargreaves and other, other people. But, but they, they said they had these learn, professional learning communities. But actually, when we looked at the schools, some of them, all of them met in some ways and all of them had discussions, but in some of the schools, that was a very top-down thing. So here's what the school said should be learned in these communities. And in other schools, it was very much, um, you know, what the staff were, were, were com coming up with. And so what we did in the schools was some no social network analysis. So we looked at who you were most likely to go to for help and support when dealing with, with youngsters who are vulnerable, not necessarily to exclusion, but vulnerable to not doing well in school, which often leads to, to mm -hmm. exclusion. And what we found was that the many teachers in many of the schools would go to one or two people you might expect them to, so the special needs coordinator, the head of a particular year group, a senior leader, whereas in other schools there were far more reciprocal relationships. So 
you may go to lots of different people, might be in, in your subject department, but then, but then also outside. So if I was a mathematician, I'd be talking to people from English, drama, whatever. And I'd have wider social networks outside in other schools mm-hmm. as well, people I could talk to. And not only that I talked to, that I went to you for advice, but you came to me for advice. So those those levels were, were reciprocal. And what that suggested were these people were more likely to share a problem. So they were more likely to be open about if they were finding um, something difficult in, in working with particularly young people. So they were more likely to problematize. And then what we did, we, we looked at the teachers in, in the schools that were most fit that pattern so they were most reciprocal in two schools one which was from relatively not affluent but not poor area of, of the city we were working in and the other in a completely polar opposite very economically disadvantaged um, area but they had a very similar patterns of collaborative partnerships in in the schools and we looked at the teachers in in, in those schools and the ones who were most reciprocal in both schools were also the ones who were more likely to teach in ways that are, that are perceived to be good teaching on a whole range of, 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 of teaching teaching measures. They were more likely to be doing the sort of things that were seen to be conducive to good good learning. And that that was irrespective of how many years they've been teachers. It was irrespective of gender and it was irrespective of um, how many years they've been in that school as well. So they might be a first-year teacher. They might be very young. They would be um, talking to lots of people. They'd be sh- um, sharing ideas and they'd be exhibiting good teaching behaviours. Now, as opposed to the other schools which talked about their learning communities, professional learning communities, but actually were very top-down, they were far more likely to, in the in the broad sense, exclude. So the youngsters who were not in, in, included in the learning in, in that, that, that classroom. And the other schools, far less likely to. And actually, if we look at the, the figures o- over time in terms of fixed-term exclusion, actually, you can only really compare fixed-term exclusions over time because permanent exclusions can be a, a spike of four or five youngsters at any one time, maybe a single incident or something happening. But over time, these schools are also less likely to exclude. So it, it suggests that the cultures of a school are really important because for someone to be able to go in there and in their first year feel able to ask everyone questions and people ask them questions, suggested that, that the culture of that school was more open, it was more reciprocal, it was also based on, on relationships, all the sort of things that we talked about being important for youngsters. Those are the schools where the culture is such that people can be more open to ask for help and to t- talk about problems in their classrooms or challenges in their classroom with other teachers and head teachers and senior leaders. But also, is it about what they're learning? So you're saying that the schools that are more rigid and very top-down uh, mandate ha- what we're going to talk about in these learning communities, they don't do quite as well. Whereas when it's a more open and free form discussions in the learning communities where it's yeah. driven more by the teachers, yeah. that they're better. So is it what they're learning? Is it that they... When it's top down, they're not able to really discuss the important things that are happening in their classroom. What is it about these two ways? Yeah, I think I mean, I think if I was categorised the top down version, while it was always focused on learning and they wanted to improve exam results and ultimately, but they, you know, they they did talk about learning, but because it was imp- it was an imposed view of what the problem was, i.e., not enough youngsters are getting the higher grades or they're not taking this subject or whatever, 
it actually missed what the real problem was. So looking at it the other, other way around, so why are these youngsters not being interested in learning, which is what the teachers in the more specific collaborative schools were, were saying, was more like, like to look at the heart of what the real problem was. So often it was, we're just not doing it right as mm-hmm. teachers. We're not speaking in the right way to these youngsters. We're not, or, we, or we're grouping them wrong. So one of the things that, particularly in one of those two schools I talked about, the teachers said was, we realised actually that we were breaking up kids because we saw them as being disruptive. We put them together. So a, a child that exhibits certain behaviours um, was never allowed to sit with their friends. But actually by readdressing that, I'm finding that actually they were much more likely to behave if they were with their friends because they wanted to be humiliated in front of their, their friends. So put them into group work. They were going to talk, not necessarily always on, on, on task, but they were going to talk in, in an area or, or a group that, that made them feel feel safe. And so looking, it's it's about reversing what the problem is. It means you're more likely to understand what the problem right. is. You know, there's lots of studies in, in education and in other disciplines that said that the importance of emotional well-being for learning. You're not likely to learn very well if you're not feeling very happy about yourself or your social milieu. So understanding that that's what the roots of, of, of the problem is, I think that's why those schools do better. It's really important. So although this is a very big and complex problem, what kind of tips would you have for schools and teachers on taking first steps towards trying to address this issue of exclusion and trying to understand and help students? Well, I think the first tip is, is to step away from what some schools use, which is sort of no excuses policies. So the sort of you know, zero tolerance type policies, which some schools use on the grounds that, that they do it because they're trying to protect the rights of the, of, of the majority of, stu- of students mm-hmm. in the school. So the argument is if there are some students who are disruptive, they're harming the, the learning of others. And as soon as you start saying that, then you're always going to have some people who are outside the norm so you're all you're more likely to to exclude them that if you turn the question around and say why is it that some students don't feel happy in the school and are, and are behaving in the ways that they are I think that's the first step to to actually minimizing unnecessary exclusions or, or exclusions that, that could have been prevented maybe the better, better way to right. to put it so I think that's that's the first thing to have policies that are more based on relationship. We even use the term relationship. You know, I mean, it's, Scotland has not got less poverty than than England or Wales or Northern Ireland. It's not got areas without social deprivation, for for example. But by by just addressing the problem differently, they have made huge advances. And it's not just in exclusion. Actually, I mean, Glasgow, for example, used to be one of these most hit in, in Europe in terms of knife crime. They addressed it in, in sim, sim, similar ways in, in terms of looking at what the problem is and why youngsters are, were feeling the need or being coerced, whatever it was, in, into carrying knives in the first place. And by addressing the problem rather than seeing the children as, as the problem, rather than the problem itself, they've managed to reverse that. So they exclude less, you know, less likely to have social, social problems outside of, of school as well. Yeah, I think that that's the first step. And then being open, you know, staff being open, having the cultures where if you are having problems uh, as a teacher, you feel it's fine to go and say that to mm-hmm. someone else and get feedback and, uh, and not be told, well, you should, you, know, you should have learned that when you were in your initial teacher education or, 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 or 
whatever. So yeah, it's it's about um, creating a culture which is open and honest, and therefore to address problems. So very supportive and continuous conversation, continuous learning, in yeah. Uh, yeah. what everyone's experiencing. That's really fantastic. Well. Yeah. It certainly is a huge issue around the world. And I think that definitely applies everywhere, that relationships and understanding where problems begin and why they're starting is absolutely critical and being able to talk about it. So before we end, I would like to ask you for a recommendation, a book or an article or something that inspires you. In terms of, of the theoretical thinking, I think, that we're doing behind excluded lives, when I would look at Carl Parsons' article, The Will to Punish, which is actually quite an old article. It was 2005, mm-hmm. I think. And I think that would be a good way, way to look at it. But, but also, yeah, we, we are producing work ourselves. So we wrote a piece about special education and why, the, 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 under the guise of being inclusive, England has become increasingly more likely to exclude. So, and with Harry Daniels leading on that one, which was called After Warnock, a, a piece. And other background information, I've recently published an edited book with a colleague, Gabriel Evenson from Manchester, which is looking at poverty in education across the UK. And again, it's got a comparative analysis with colleagues from, from the former jurisdictions and looking why it is that the culture in, in England is so different to the cultures in the other jurisdictions. So that's the sort of reading that, I, that would be useful to right. do. But in terms of the theoretical underpinnings, I think you're looking at people like, like Parsons is, is helpful. Great. Well, thank you very much. That's really, that's really good advice and a lot of great insights and tips on how to be more understanding and empathetic to prevent these issues in the first place, especially as people are under a lot of stress and the children in essence are then under a lot of stress. It's so important to know how to prevent it. So thank you very much for sharing your insights and your knowledge on this. I really appreciate it. No problem. Nice talking. Thank you.